0: Okay, well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to be able to add to Simon's welcome. It's lovely to hear those conversations, which we'll be able to continue over a cup of tea and coffee after the service. Um, But we're gonna pray now for our world and our church and also ask for God's help as we turn to his word together. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, in a shaky And unstable world, we come to you again this morning, the stability of our times. You are a fountain of plenty for us, Father, and in you is everything we need. Father, we come to intercede and pray for unreached peoples this morning, the Shinna people of Pakistan, who we've committed to pray for the Hadramut Arabs of Yemen, the people group we adopted last year to pray for. We pray for workers in these regions. We pray for seekers amidst unreached peoples. We pray for Christians, for churches. And we pray, Father, that you would send out your light and your truth across Pakistan, across Yemen, across the Middle East, across unreached people groups across this world and save people and bring them home into you. We think of our own mission partners this morning, the Ariases in Portugal, their little church there at Santo André. We thank you, Father, for the encouragements they've seen over this past while and we just continue to pray for them. We pray for Shane as he continues his work in Villarreal. Just bless him and help him. We think of the brews as they settle in to Tacna in Peru again and start into the pathway of their retirement. We think of Michael and Elizabeth out in Kajabi for the next couple of months and just pray for them that you just encourage them in their work and work through them. We think of Connor and Jen training at Oak Hill and thinking about their longer term future. And we think of Karis in Birmingham and the work she's involved in, reaching out to so many kids in the school she's in, and we just continue to pray for that work. Father, we pray for Afghanistan this morning and for Syria and for other countries like those where there is ongoing civil unrest. And of course, we remember Ukraine this morning. Father, we pray for cool heads in positions of leadership. We pray for diplomacy and for peace agreements to be found and enacted. And we thank you for those who have been able to settle here among us as a church family. Thank you for those who are hosting Uh, our friends, our brothers and sisters from Ukraine, we pray your blessing upon them. We also think of our own association of churches and the churches that will be gathering right across this whole island of Ireland, Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. We think of little church plants like Belturbet, Katy, Passage West, right down there in Cork. Just pray that our brothers and sisters would know joy and flourishing in life as they gather this morning. We continue to pray also closer to home for our own uh, little province, Northern Ireland. We pray for continuing improvements in our political situation. We pray that we would see at the right time an executive formed again and flourishing cooperative governance. We pray, Lord, for the churches here in Belfast round about us. We pray, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit, and bring reviving grace. And Lord, for ourselves as a church family, we think of those that can't be out with us this morning, perhaps because of being in a care home or being in hospital. Um, Perhaps some of them now watching online, we know they're there. We pray that you would encourage our brothers and sisters. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege of corporate fellowship. But Lord, you know everything that's going on inside our hearts and minds this morning. You know exactly where we are. Some perhaps have come this morning carrying burdens, fears, anxieties, or just just feel worn, worn out. And so we come to you and just seek refreshment and renewal. Help us as a church, Lord, to honor your name. And Lord, as now we turn to your word and we press in to your being, O Father, by your Son and through your Spirit, do good things among us as we reflect on your nature as our triune God. O Lord, come because these are spiritual things that we need your Holy Spirit to help us grasp, and we just pray for your light and truth to lead us together and that you would encourage our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, please do open up to John 17. It might be helpful to have that passage in front of you as we get into this second part uh, of our short series that I've entitled, Delighting in Our Triune God. We've taken a break from our usual diet of um, just working our way through books. We were over a year and a half in Mark's Gospel, Simon's continuing in, in, in Ecclesiastes in the evening, but we felt as elders it would be good to just stop, take five weeks to look at the doctrine of the trinity this the most important doctrine in all of christianity and as we established last week it's the most important doctrine in all of christianity because it tells us who the god is whom we worship because of this fact this is never to be a doctrine that we say is for just super academic Christians in theological institutions. This is not just a doctrine to be understood. This is a truth about the nature of God that is to be experienced. It is to be practical, giving shape to every area of our Christian lives. I know some of you will really engage this morning, and you really love this deep doctrine. I know for other, others of you, you may struggle a little bit with it, but I would really encourage us all together to try to really press in this morning to the deep things of God. Now, because Some weren't here last week to get the foundations. I want to give a brief recap of what we covered last week before we press on into the focus this morning, where we're going to be thinking of the Trinitarian shape of the gospel. We identified last week, first, a problem in our generation with respect to the doctrine of the Trinity. And that problem's this. Instead of a deep knowledge of... And real communion and enjoyment of our triune God, we've often at best settled for a vague feeling that the Trinity is somehow true. Instead of articulating the doctrine in our generation, we've assumed it for so long. And I believe this has had a negative impact on our communion with God. So we started last week in Matthew 28, 19, and we led three Trinitarian foundations by looking at what it means to be baptized into the triune name. We started, first of all, with this foundation stone of monotheism, God's oneness. We are not baptized into the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but the one name of Father, Son, and And Holy Spirit. We as Christians believe in one God. Then we moved to look at the triunity of God. That one name belongs to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One divine essence and three persons. Then we got really practical and we thought about how this command, where it falls in the Great Commission, demonstrates that God wants us to think about our conversion and discipleship and missions in a Trinitarian way. The life of discipleship is working out what it means to live in the goodness of the name, how to wear it well. Those were our foundation stones that we set in place last week. And building on that this morning, I want to ask this one key question to guide us in our study this morning: How can we begin to move from a vague idea of the Trinity to a more clearly defined knowledge of and communion with the Triune God? If we've raised this as an issue, that we have a kind of vagueness that we just think, yeah, somewhere tr- the Trinity's true we've assumed it and we haven't articulated it, how do we move from that place to perhaps a clearer understanding of the Trinity? Though let's be real, we can press up to the mystery line so far and then our little finite minds cannot contain the infinite, infinite God. But here are three steps that I want to suggest this morning for how we can make this move from vagueness to perhaps more clarity. And this is going to be the spine that kind of uh, holds us together this morning. I think we can move from this place of vagueness to a place of clarity um, by the following three steps. Number one, I think we should try hard to seek to know God more as he is in himself, God's internal being. Second, I think it's important for us to seek to appreciate the Trinitarian shape of the gospel. How the gospel flows out of God's being and takes its shape from him. And then third, I think it's really important for us to always remember the Trinitarian end of the gospel. The, the, the gospel finds its source and shape in the triune God. It finds its end when we are unfolded into communion with the triune God. So those are the three sections that I'm going to spend time unpacking this morning. And I've prepared the PowerPoint to try and help us because we are moving through some of the deepest and most delightful um, truths in all of Christianity. But I'll not lie there, they take us to, to really focus. They take us to think hard, to work together on this. Sometimes you need to hear this and then hear it again and hear it again but it's really important because, as I said, it has to do with the very being of God. So let's think together now, first of all, about how we can seek to know God more as he is in himself. And one of the ways we can get at a fuller understanding of God's being in himself is to ponder God's being before any of his works of creation. So here's a question that I want us to ponder for a moment. If God had never said, Let there be light, would he still exist eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? If Christmas, the incarnation, hadn't happened, would the Son of God still be the Son of God? If Pentecost hadn't happened, would the Holy Spirit exist eternally with the Father and the Son? What do you think? Well, the the, the answer to these hypothetical questions is, of course, yes. As one writer has helpfully said, God minus the world is still God, the Holy Trinity, Do we get any glimpses into this pre-creation existence of the three persons of the Godhead in Scripture? Yes, we do. There are a few texts where we get a little bit of an insight into our triune God before creation. And when you read them, it really is like you're walking on holy ground. The first there is John 17, 4 and 5 that Sharon read for us earlier. Here, Jesus is praying to the Father just in the shadow of the cross. And as he begins to think of the culmination of his mission in his death and resurrection, he prays to the Father in John 17, 4 and 5, and says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here, the Son of God speaking, of glory that he shared with the Father before the world ever existed. What does Jesus mean by glory? I think it's worth asking that question. Well, the glory of God in Scripture is the excellence and infinite beauty of all of God's attributes. So before creation, we get a glimpse here into the Father and the Son enjoying a communion and a community of glory together, delighting eternally in the attributes of God. A little further on in John 17, verse 24, Jesus speaks of this pre-creation communion a little more. Verse 24, Father, I desire, he's still praying, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So in this community of glory, there was an enjoyment before the foundation of the world of eternal love, the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. And we know also that the Holy Spirit was part of this eternal communion, because in passages like Genesis 1-2, for example, we read that the Spirit of God was also present before God ever said, let there be light hovering over the emptiness of an uncreated world, ready to fill it with light and life. So if we step back for a moment and just try to put some really clear building blocks in place for understanding our God before creation existed, I think we get some really uh, clear statements down through what we read in Scripture. I'm just going to walk through them to be as clear as possible. Number one, there was never a time in which God did not exist. Number two, there was never a time in which God was only the Father. The Son did not start to become the Son at Christmas. (laughs) He existed eternally as the Son with the Father. Three, there was never a time in which God was only the Father and the Son. Four, there was never a time in which God was not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Five, God eternally exists as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God and fully possesses all of the attributes of God. And now, if that is the case, the next question we must ask is, well, how do the persons of the Godhead differ? If the Father is fully God with all the attributes of God, and the Son is fully God with all the attributes of God, and the Spirit is fully God with all the attributes of God, how do we even discern any distinction between the three persons of the Godhead? And there are two ways that we distinguish the persons of the Godhead. The first is in what we call eternal relations, or eternal relations of origin. Now, stay with me here. We're charting through some deep waters, but this is really, really helpful, and I'll draw out some practical reasons for why I think it's helpful after we walk through it. The only way we can define the persons of the Godhead eternally is to define them as they relate to one another. Which makes a lot of sense, because you think of God revealing his name at the burning bush with Moses, and he says, I am who I am. The self-existent, self-defining God. So we can only understand the difference between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by the fact that they are called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit eternally in Scripture. But let's think of these relationships a little more for a few moments. The first relationship we think of, or that I want us to think of this morning, is the eternal relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. The Father has always been the Father, and the Son has always been the Son. The Bible teaches us that the Son of God eternally generates out from the Father. We call this eternal generation or eternal begottenness. It does not mean that the Father created the Son. The Son does not borrow divinity from the Father. He is always the divine Son who has always generated out from the Father. He shares the same divine essence as the Father. You might want to think, right, well, if the Father is the Father and the Son is the Son, when did the Son become the Son? And the answer is, he has eternally stood with the Father as the Son. When was the Son begotten from the Father? We call it an eternal begetting. There was never a time when the Son was not the Son of the Father and the Father was not the Father of the Son. In John 5, 26, um, there's a fascinating text where Jesus says this, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And you have to ask the question, when did the Father grant the Son that life? And the answer is, it was an eternal grant. There is no beginning to it. There, there is just an eternal granting from the Father of life to the Son. There was never a point when that was not the case. It's really helpful to press in to this relationship, how the Son relates to the Father. We call this eternal generation. He eternally proceeds out from the Father. The second relationship then that we need to think of is the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We say that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds out from or is breathed out from the Father through the Son. We call this eternal spiration, which is a word that reflects this idea of being breathed out In John 14, 26, Jesus teaches that the Spirit will be sent out from the Father through the Son. And this mission, this sending, flows from the eternal shape of the divine relations. The Holy Spirit is not created. He does not borrow divinity from the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds out from the Father and the Son. There was never a moment where the Spirit was not. There was never a moment when the Son was not. There was never a moment when the Father was not. So we distinguish the persons in the Godhead relative to one another by means of their persons. The Father is the Father of the Son. The Son is the Son of the Father. The Holy Spirit is breathed out from the Father and the Son. This is our triune God. And it is a beautiful truth and it is good news because for all eternity, our God has been one but is not solitary. Now, why is it important to think about this? Some of you might be saying, Steve, that is so deep, so hard. I am content with just knowing that God exists. Well, I think it's really important to press in on this this morning. Now, I'm not saying you should be going every day in your quiet time and pressing into the eternal relations of origin in the Godhead in some ways, but it's important for us not to assume this. The church must keep being explicitly Trinitarian. We cannot just assume it. Why? Well, first, because the Bible affirms these deep truths about our triune God. This is how God has made himself known. And we want to press into the mystery of God's being as far as we can go. And when we get to the mystery line, at the point we can go no further, we fall on our knees and we sing, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. Second, why should we press in on these eternal relations in the Godhead? Well, because of this. Reflecting on the eternal relations in the Godhead teaches us something very foundational and important about our God. And it is this. Our God is relational by nature. Now, this is such good news And let me try and get at why this is good news by asking this question. If God did not exist as a triune God, could it be said of God's nature that God is love? Now, you're going to have to think about this with me for a moment. Before creation, if God is just a solitary singularity, who could he set his love on? You might just say, well, on himself. But love, by definition, is self giving. It gives out, it gives itself away. If God was alone and was love by nature, he would either be a frustrated lover without a creation, or he would be frozen. A solitary God like the God of Islam is a soul, lifeless, frozen singularity before creation. The God of the Bible is a God who eternally enjoys a fruitful community of oneness and a shared community of love and glory our God, our triune God, is at home in the happy land of the Trinity eternally. He does not need creation to exist to be fulfilled, but he creates out of the overflow of his delight to make his glory known in great acts of power and grace and mercy. The Trinity is good news because it tells us that our God is relational by nature, and so we can relate to him. So, one of the ways I believe we can move from Trinitarian vagueness to more clarity is by pressing in to try to get to know God as He is in Himself. Sometimes we can just get in the habit of praising God for all that he has done. And that is good. But let's trace all those streams and all those rivers right up to the source of his being and delight in the happy land of our triune God. So the first way we can move from vagueness to clarity is by seeking to know God as he is in himself. But the second way is by seeking to more fully appreciate the Trinitarian shape of the gospel. Behind all of God's loving acts is God's glorious being. I'm going to quote uh, from this very helpful book called The Deep Things of God by Fred Sanders. Um, If anyone wants to go further and plumb the depths of the Trinity a little more, this is a very helpful little fork and knife that will help get you into the main meal of the word Sanders has said, balanced evangelical Trinitarianism doesn't just throw itself into the river of the gospel and swim away downstream. It also acknowledges the fountain from which the river flows. He goes on to say, when God acts, the God who is in internally triune acts in an externally triune way. In the gospel, God the Father, Son, Son, and holy spirit saves us by being father son and holy spirit for us that takes a little bit of reflection but it's wonderful in the gospel the god who by by nature is father son and holy spirit he saves us by being the father unto us the son for us the spirit for us when i was at school um, there was a class called home economics i don't know if you still do it today um, but it was great. I remember cooking mashed potato and putting butter in it, and me and my mates must have ate about 20 potatoes in that afternoon, and it was absolutely brilliant. I don't know if they call it that anymore, but home economics, it, it was called home economics because it's like the economy of the home, the way the home life is ordered. It was a bit old school, to be honest, in the, way, the day I did it, but that's just the way it was. We'll not get into that. Um, but we could speak of salvation economics today. The economy of salvation. How is our salvation ordered? Well, it's ordered in a triune way. And this is the second way that we can distinguish between the three persons of the Godhead. Each of the members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, take what we could call a leading role in particular areas of our salvation. We're going to think about this over the next three weeks in much more detail. Let me introduce it here. Let's think for a moment about the Father's role in our salvation. The Father, we're told in Scripture, takes a lead as the originator or source of every blessing we enjoy in the gospel. In Ephesians 1.3, for example, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In that passage in verses 4 and 5, we go on to read that the Father chose us in Christ, predestined to adoption us to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The Father takes a leading role in sending the Son out from himself. Now, think about this. The divine mission of salvation, the Father sending out the Son, it actually reflects the being of God, the divine eternal generation of the Son. It's not just random. The Father sends out the Son to save us because it reflects the very being of God, how the Son eternally generates out from the Father. The gospel is Trinitarian in its shape. John 3.16 puts this uh, together beautifully. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you think about it, there is an appropriateness in the Father sending the Son for it reflects the Trinitarian nature of the Father and Son's relationship. The Son doesn't send the Father. The Father sends the Son this is an ordered economy of salvation. And so what we're going to be thinking about next week is how we come to enjoy the Father in his fatherliness. How we pray and delight in him as the origin and source of all the good things we enjoy. And we're going to think about that in more depth next week. So we see the Father as a source of salvation, but as we turn to the Son then, we see the Son takes a lead as the accomplisher of our salvation. In Ephesians 1:3, we read that we are blessed in Christ, chosen in Christ, united with him in his atoning death and death defeating resurrection. We could say that the incarnation of the Son of God is the central act in which God has made himself known. That's striking. We would not know that God had a son but for the incarnation. Christmas is so much more about the son just coming to save us. He comes to make God known. And this is what we read in John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the Son of God came to reveal the glory and love of the triune God by coming to die for our salvation. Think about it. Self-giving love revealed in the Father's sending. Self-giving love demonstrated in the Son's willing going. The Son comes from the Father to seek and save the lost. And we know from reading our Gospels that Jesus did not act on his own or carry out his own plan. John 14, 10, and 11 Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So when we come to commune with Christ, we commune with him in his grace, the accomplisher of our salvation. We think of him as the one who loved us and gave himself for us. But we also remember that the Father doesn't just send the Son to accomplish our salvation. He sends the Spirit along with the Son to empower the Son's mission and to apply the salvation that the Son would accomplish. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. That means blessings of the Holy Spirit. It is a beautiful thing to identify how the Spirit and the Son work together for our salvation. It is just a beautiful thing to see. In fact, at every significant juncture in Christ's mission, we explicitly read of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. For example, at Christ's virgin birth, at the incarnation, we read of the Holy Spirit moving upon Mary and bringing powerfully about the incarnation of the Son of God. At Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on Christ. This beautiful, symbolic, dove-like act that speaks of Christ being the one anointed with the Spirit and empowered for his ministry. And the Father, in that moment, affirms, this is my beloved Son. And you get that beautiful glimpse right at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, of the Father's delight in the Son, the Son's delight in the Father, and the Spirit's beautiful union of delight with the Father and the Son. Even in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we read of the significance of the ministry of the Spirit. Hebrews 9.14 tells us it was through the eternal Spirit that Jesus offered himself up for death. In Romans 1.4, we read it was the power of the Spirit who worked Christ's resurrection from the dead. So that's one way to think of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, how he empowers the ministry of Christ. But the second way to think of the ministry of the Spirit is to think of how Jesus spoke of himself going away and that he would then come and send forth the Spirit with the Father in a new way so that the Holy Spirit, God himself, would come and indwell disciples of Christ and empower us to walk with God in our lives. In John 16, 14, Jesus said, He, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and make it known unto you. That is a beautiful text. The Holy Spirit will take all of the accomplishments of the Son and He'll make them known to us in our personal lives. One of the beautiful ways the Holy Spirit does this is mentioned by Paul in Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I love to just think of the Holy Spirit with a bucket of the love of God just pouring it into my heart and filling it up. So the Father saves by sending, the Son saves by accomplishing, the Spirit saves by applying. In the book of Titus, this is all put together beautifully. Titus 3, 4 to 7. Just listen to this description of our Trinitarian salvation. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. It's beautiful. And I'm arguing that we need to rediscover the Trinitarian shape of our salvation in our day. This will help us to be more clearly and explicitly Trinitarian without just assuming it vaguely. But I did say also there was a third way for us to move from vagueness to clarity. We've thought about seeking to know God more as he is in himself... We've sought to appreciate the Trinitarian shape of the gospel. The third way I think we can make this move from vagueness to clarity is by seeking to remember the Trinitarian end of the gospel. When I played rugby, often uh, at certain points in the match, we would gather together uh, as a team in like a huddle. And all 15 players would put their arm around each other. You'd pull in really tight and you'd be in a really tight community as a team but every now and again someone would not be in the huddle (laughs) and they would come running in from the outside and what we would do at that point is you'd break your arms and you'd open up and let them into the huddle and fold them into it. That is the picture that I want you to have in mind as we think of what God does for us in the gospel. Summarized again helpfully by Fred Sanders, the good news of the gospel is that God has opened up the dynamics of his triune life and has given us a share in that fellowship. Now, this is mind-blowing. Think of the triune God opening the triune huddle and saying, Come in. Come into this community of glory. Come into this community of love. Know the security. Yourself. Know the glory. Enjoy it. We don't become God, but we're enfolded into the enjoyment of God. This is why our second text that was read this morning was Galatians 4, 4 4-6. It's lovely. It tells us that this is the end of the gospel. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Jesus has opened God's triune life to us so that we can make ourselves at home in the happy land of the Trinity, enjoying that wonderful community of glory and love, not as distant observers, not even as foreign guests, but as sons and daughters, we find a home in the happy land of the Trinity. And that is why over and over again in the Psalms and over and over again in the Bible, we read of the Lord, who is our eternal dwelling place. He's our home. This is the greatest news of the universe. It's why God ever said, let there be light, to display the glory of the triune God with those, the recipients of his mercy. And so amazingly, we are in Heights that are incredible in John 17, 25, when Jesus prays, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made you known. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I hope you can see I'm not making this up. Jesus saying the end of the whole thing That, imagine it, the infinite proportion of the love of the Father for the Son. The Father says, Jesus Jesus says to the Father, I did everything I did on the mission you sent me on. So that that same love with which you've loved me could be in Lindsay and Jimmy and Yanni and Robert and Iris and and Diane and David and, and everyone here. How incredible is that? Enfolded into the very happy land of the Trinity. So we can say the circuit between God's being, God's missions, and our salvation is complete when we make it home to God, when we're enfolded into the delightful life of our triune God. That's the gospel that we are here to proclaim to this city. We are explicitly Trinitarian. We delight in this. We don't assume it. So that we have something worth passing on to our children. So let's land this plane a little bit by just getting it at four ways that I think this makes a difference for us today. And with this, I'll close because this is essentially a taster now of the next three weeks. But I just want to start, before I bring it, let me just back up one wee second. I just want to start before we get into this. Just asking the question first of all. Do you know the triune God? Do you know God in this way as he's revealed himself? Here's another question. If you're a Christian, is it your goal, your priority to grow in your knowledge of this triune God? To grow in your delight in him? To know him? And to... To walk in what you were created to enjoy. We're going to think about what that looks like practically over the next few weeks. But here's just a few, few tasters. First, we are to walk in the security and blessing that the love of God in Christ gives us. God wants us to be secure in the happy land of the Trinity. When you're praying, I'd encourage you to take this image. Imagine... The triune God like a blanket that you're wrapping yourself into when you're praying. Don't worry too much about thinking Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in too much detail because you can get yourself all tangled up. Just think now, Father, I'm coming to you and I'm just wrapping myself in the Son and the Spirit as I come to read my Bible and pray this morning. God wants you to be secure in his love, to know him as your dwelling place. So if you're here this morning, you're racked with insecurity and anxiety, and you're really, just, you're really just struggling with your mental health, or in, in some way that just you've come in burdened this morning. No, God wants you to know you can be secure in His love. Second way, this can be really helpful, or some way we're to pl- apply this we're to learn to commune with each of the persons of the Godhead in their eternal relations and eternal missions. We want to learn how to pray. To the Father as the originator and source of our salvation. We want to pray and enjoy communion with the Son as the accomplisher. We want to enjoy communion with the Spirit as the Applier. We want to learn and know how to do that more and more. We're going to look at that over the next few weeks. Three. Our goal in discipleship is to aim to reflect the community of the God who exists in unity and diversity. We want to see at Great Vic a community of unity and diversity where we delight in the glory of God and where we share the love of God for one another. Our shape, the shape of the church, is to take its shape from the Trinitarian shape of the gospel that finds its origin in the Trinitarian being of God we are to reflect God as image bearers. That's what that means. And then fourthly, we are to share the mission of the triune God who goes out to welcome others in. Think about this. The being of God The Son who eternally goes out from the Father, the Spirit who eternally goes out from the Father and the Son, in the mission of salvation, gives shape to the church's mission in the world. We go out to the unreached, we go out to the nations, we go out to the city, we go out to everyone, and we don't drop down on them the eternal origins of the Godhead, we tell them, Jesus loves you and has given himself for you. we're to share this beautiful triune invitation, perhaps the most beautiful Trinitarian invitation in all of Scripture, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, the Son extending the hand of fellowship from the triune God saying, come into me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I, I will give you rest. I will show you rest. I will give you rest. I will be your rest. This invitation stands for us all this morning. Christian, non-Christian, however you're feeling this morning, our triune Father has sent out His Son so that He would take hold of you and welcome you into the comfort and security that God alone can give to you. In Him is everything we need. Will you respond? And give yourself to him afresh this morning. Let's pray. Oh Father. How do we even begin. To respond and express our delight for all you are. And all you, all you do for us. Father we thank you for your son. And we delight in your Son, our Savior. And Father, you look at us, and then you look at your Son, and you look at us, and you see that we're righteous in your Son's beautiful righteousness, and you delight in your Son's perfect accomplishments, and that delight flows over into us, and the Spirit pours that wonderful love of God into our hearts, and we are enfolded into the enjoyment of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is such good news that you are triune relational and that you have invited us into this incredible relationship. And we pray that we would not take that for granted, but that this triune beauty would shape our lives individually and corporately as a fellowship, that we would give you delight as we reflect your very nature in all that we are as a church. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone this morning here and they don't know Jesus, that that even now they would realize that the Father sent the Son to bring me home to God and that they would respond rightly. And as we respond together as a church family in in prayer and in worship now, singing of your holiness. We pray that you would stir our hearts. Holy Spirit, do your work of stirring our hearts as we delight in the Son and the Father. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I I wanted to save this song for this moment. So we're going to rise together and sing Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Let's stand and praise God together. of the Holy Spirit rest, remain and abide with us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.